Here's a headline or the uh, title from an article we picked off of theconversation.com a few days ago. Ottawa's $10 a day child care promise should heed Quebec's insights about balancing low fees with high quality. It's a great article. The author is Kerry McQuaig, who is a fellow in early childhood policy at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Kerry joins us today from the center of the universe. Ms. McQuaig, Kerry, good morning and welcome. Good morning. It's good to have you with us, Kerry. Let me just read the first first line from this very fine piece you wrote of the conversation. Quote, new research from the University of Toronto captures how parents struggle to find child care providers they feel comfortable with and can afford. Unless awarded a scarce fee subsidy, low-income families are priced out of government-regulated child care. And that's uh, not only in the province of Ontario, either is it, Kerry. That applies right across Canada, obviously, except Quebec, right? That's true. Uh, some places have it, you know, harder than others, uh, but it is a long-standing and ongoing problem across the country for parents to find child care that they feel comfortable with and they can afford. Now, uh, we need to talk a lot about Quebec because that's going to be used as the, the example of how a successful program can be run on a wide scale, in this case within the boundaries of a province. Are there any other Canadian provinces, Kerry, that have uh, comparable child care options to some degree? Yeah, I think it, if we look at Tiny PEI, um, it actually did uh, did childcare right uh, back in 2010. Uh, they provided, uh, they flipped to uh, you know universal. They they had been a half time childcare, uh, sorry, ki- uh, kindergarten pr- program. They flipped to full day uh, kindergarten, and they had you know a kind of a number of little mom and pop childcare programs, some of them literally ran out of uh, garages mm-hmm. uh, that they flipped into what they call early years centers. And uh, so they were well fun- funded. So those, uh, those centers uh, take kids from zero to four. Uh, and, you know, they have teachers that are uh, well paid. They have, uh, they have fees that are, are, are regulated by the, by the government so that they're not out- outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they and there's a lot of emphasis put on the quality of the programming that goes goes on there. And about seventy percent of uh, kids under four attend one of those programs in PI. It's interesting. Uh, can we just talk a little bit, Carrie, for a moment about uh, the age groups and age appropriate programming within these daycare centers? Because this, uh, from your perspective, and I've, I've done a little homework on the incredible homework you've done on this subject over the years. From your perspective, uh, uh, there's a lot more to this whole the whole notion of daycare. It's not a, gro- a, a glorified, unionized babysitting service by any stretch, is it? Although a lot of Canadians tend to think of it as that, don't they? Well, let's just say that it should not be a glorified babysitting service. Um, in addition to challenges finding affordable uh, care, uh, we know that too much of the care that is provided in Canada is not much better than glorified babysitting. And that's because a lot of families have to go make their own um, arrangements, whether it's through nannies or the lady down down the, the, the street. And mm-hmm. even when you get into government-regulated care, 
um, there's great differences in, you know, what we call the quality of, of the care. You know, how many how many of the staff actually have qualifications in their sure. in early childhood? You know, are they paid well enough so that the turnover isn't like a revolving door? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, you know, what's, what are the physical environments that the, that the kids are, are in? Is it a church basement? Is it a, in a strip mall? Um, all of those, uh, uh, all of those factors c- uh, come into play when we're talking about really the, the, <laughs> the dearth of, choices that parents have when it Indeed. comes to finding really high quality programs for their kids. So let's use the Quebec model as the example that uh, British Columbians can understand most and the one we're going to hear the most about. Uh, for example, on, uh, in the Quebec model, and you, you will tell us that there, there isn't one form of daycare in, in uh, subsidized daycare in Quebec. There are, in fact, three, and we'll talk about what those three are. But across all spectrums or all, across all categories within this, is there a provincially established curriculum so regardless of where you are in the province of Quebec, your child is going to go through the experience of pre, pre-school uh, education in roughly the same way as children right across the province are. Yeah, this is a move that Quebec just took. It, uh, Quebec has come under a lot of heat, both internally and externally, for the quality of its child care program. So in 2017, it developed a new, um, a new you know, high-quality uh curriculum framework for its programs and it and it insisted that every program be trained in it so now whether or not you're in a um in a home-based childcare setting or in a in a center children are getting the same um you know the same approaches are being taken to children's learning Aha. So that would also imply, and at least I'm inferring, that uh, some degree of uh, standardization is also occurring at the staff level across the system, too. No, unfortunately, that's not. Oh, OK. Um, you know, Quebec, uh, like everywhere else, has a uh, is challenged to find and keep uh, educators that are trained, uh, depending on the type of child care that you're in uh, in Quebec, there's also different standards for what kind of training the staff might, you know, must have and also how many of your staff need to be trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is not standard. So there's one thing about having a good, uh, uh, you know, a good learning pro- program for the children. But the thing that makes the difference is staff who are qualified in how to deliver it. Uh, mm-hmm. And even short-term training uh, doesn't doesn't turn uh, you know somebody into somebody who really knows about how children learn and develop. So the 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 balance, of course, that you point to in this article that brought to you to our attention in the first place is is the is the managing of an affordable. Uh, uh, education system for for preschoolers uh, that also n- uh, contains uh, a fairly high degree of quality, and that is that. And Quebec's been at this for a while. This is not new to Quebec, as you point out. They've been at this for approximately twenty years. How has how has their system evolved in twenty years to assure a better balance between still lower fees and yet maintaining a quality level that's international? Well, Quebec had its growth pro- uh, problems. There's no doubt about about mm-hmm. it. But maybe I can maybe I can start with the different types of childcare that there are in Quebec. So the biggest childcare provider by far are the schools. So once your child starts school, 
you have the option of before and after school and lunch co- and uh, lunch pr- programs for eight dollars and thirty five cents a day, mm-hmm. and and these these are the only the schools are the only providers of uh, of childcare for those uh, for kids that that age group the only sure. government uh, t- type. Then there's what are called uh, the centers of for little, for little children. And these were supposed to be, you know, what Quebec, you know, when it was envisioned, these were supposed to be the programs that, um, you know, that would flourish throughout the, uh, the province. And so they are um, focused on kids zero to four. Um, the majority of the staff are trained. There's a solid curriculum in place. It, you pay. There's a standard fee that parents parents pay, and there are there's a wage grid and all of that. So staff, you know, get a you know get a decent uh, get a de- decent wage. They get a pension. They get benefits. So all the good good stuff that you want to have for a workforce that you want you know that you want okay, to have. Okay, now Carrie, let me let me, inter- let me interject here very quickly. If you can tell us what option or, or item or column three is, then we'll break for the news, and then you can we we can really get into the nuances be- and the differences between. But what is option three? We've got the schools and those uh, learning centers for zero to fours. What's the uh, column three? And then column three are the private centers, the uh-huh. private care. And that's a combination of individuals that deliver care out of their homes. And that is, then it is like the commercial child, child care. And right. within, that, <clears throat> within that, there are um, the, the government buys cheap fees, cheap fee care, and others are uh, entirely market rates and parents get their fees reimbursed through the tax system. It is a real pleasure having our next guest to join us today. She is Carrie McQuaig, a fellow in early childhood policy at the Atkinson Centre at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. Carrie wrote an article recently about Ottawa's $10 a day child care, saying the promise should heed Quebec's insights about balancing low fees with high quality. And Carrie, that's that's the that's the conundrum. That's the challenge. You described just before the news, and thank you for your patience in, in waiting through the news to, to continue this conversation. You described the fact that in Quebec there are three actual models, the largest provider being the school system, the second largest being these Centre de la Petite Enfance, the CPE Early Childhood Centers, and then the third tier of, uh, of it, uh, early childhood education in Quebec is provided by private providers. Now, is that, and you talked about PEI being the only other Canadian province that has any kind of real across-the-board government-sponsored uh, early childhood care. What about British Columbia and Ontario and, and Manitoba, etc.? What sort of models do we have? I would think here in BC, the schools obviously provide a, a great deal of, of uh, childhood care, and, th- and we go directly from that, I think, to private providers. We don't have that provincial funded CPE center system here in BC. Does Ontario carry? No, there is very little of that kind of public child care outside of Quebec and PEI. And um, BC, in fact, doesn't have schools providing child care. You, they may rent space to child care providers uh-huh, to, okay. to, to look after their kids, but it's, the right. school is not the operator of the child care program. And much of uh, BC has one of the most complicated childcare systems across the co- country, where it has 
a lot of um, uh, it's it's very divided up in terms of licensing our uh, regulations for the various age groups. It has a lot of home care, mm-hmm, um, yes. and then it, it tends to have small uh, has small centers. So it's a it, it's and and it's also spread across three different ministries. So it's it's one of the most uh, difficult um, uh, systems to get your you know to wrap your arms around. I know, but at the same time, because it is as as twisted and complicated as you've just described it to be, Carrie, wouldn't it then be even more ideal in terms of a political party, say, oh, I don't know, the liberals, for example, uh, to, to approach the people in this province and go, boy, you've got a messy early childhood system. Why don't you just vote for us and we'll put this nifty system into place just like Quebec and Bob's your uncle, your problems are solved. I mean, it, it will have some appeal to uh, a lot of people in British Columbia based on your description of our, well, rather scattered approach. Look, parents need help. There's there's no doubt, and we're coming out of a pandemic-induced recession where women have really paid the price. Mm -hmm. And if we we want to, you know, this just isn't about mothers and, and, and kids. If we want to come out of this economic slump, if women don't get back to work um, and, you know, begin to, you know, jumpstart the uh, economy, we're all going to be in trouble for a long time. So something definitely does need to be done about the lack of childcare in this uh, uh, country. Now, the everything is going to run into its growth pr- uh, pr- problems. Every program, every program does. Mm-hmm. But if we start from the, from the foundation, it's, a, it's, and if we go back to Quebec, it's about getting that foundation right and not veering for, um, for, from it. And if our foundation is, okay, we're going to get cheap care out there and that's going to be our driver. I mean, we're going to get positive benefits from that. And let's not forget, Quebec did. Quebec had one of the lowest labor force participation rates for women in the country. Mm-hmm, it now yeah. has the, the highest. It cut its child poverty rate in, uh, in half. Uh, Quebec women are more likely to be in the uh, in higher education than anywhere else in uh, in, in, in uh, Canada. There's mm-hmm. no doubt that Quebec <clears throat> Quebec's approach made a big difference for that pr- uh, pr- province, but it had its downsides. Um, not all the kids got the benefits that kids should get from being in a good early childhood pro- program, and so that's that's really my flashcard what i'm trying to to say here is there's a lot of value in providing parents with affordable care mm-hmm. but don't make that the driver or don't make that the only driver as you're expanding options for affordable care keep in mind that you don't have a workforce to provide it you have a workforce that's you know that's undervalued underpaid and undertrained so start with working on your um, on your workforce, and instead, and by all means, get a handle on that dog's breakfast of programs that you yeah, have yeah. out there that aren't that aren't meeting parents' needs. Like some call it choice. You know, it's it's the choice of chaos that parents are being confronted with, not only in BC but across the country. And, you know, you've got little kids that you're, you know, particularly once they start junior kindergarten and, uh, and kindergarten that are being, 
you know, traffic it from here to there to to everywhere instead of providing, um, you know, the extended hours that parents need on the school site. And why shouldn't schools um, get into the care game? I mean, we all knew when schools went online just how much child care schools provided. Oh, yeah. Um, why not make them responsible for extending those, you know, the options of extended hours for parents who, who require it? Why start building something brand new from scratch? Um, so, and, I mean, <clears throat> yes. No, no, I was just going to say in terms of modifying existing infrastructure here in British Columbia, and you're quite right to point out that it's not a terribly uniform package that we offer to parents in this province, but to modify that, to improve that, and and you must uh, must acknowledge at least that there's at least a government, a majority government in Victoria that is uh, predisposed to to, uh, listening to these ideas, and and I would think moving in some kind of direction to... to, uh, Perhaps they're waiting for Ottawa. Perhaps the Horgan government, the Horgan majority in BC, which hasn't done much on the child care file at all, perhaps they're waiting for Ottawa to take the lead with this new budget and see how the financing will trickle down to the to the provincial level. That will be important as well, won't it? Well, no doubt you could always do good things with money. Um, <clears throat> the mm-hmm. problem is you can do bad things with money too. So if uh, BC was merely to take the new money coming down from um, that potentially is coming down from the federal government and just layered it on top of what you right. already have. You would just get you would just get more. Um, more same. Really, this this is yeah, this is an opportunity for BC and, and all of the provinces and territories to really rethink the way that they provide um, pro- programming for young young kids and to rationalize it. In, in a way that, that it makes sense that you really have a system rather than a patchwork of services. Right. And Carrie, a final question to you. And we're really grateful to, to have you with us today to just sort of help us to understand what this is, because this is going to be, a, they're going to talking uh, be talking about childcare an awful lot in the election campaign. Mm-hmm. So the more we can understand about what they're talking about up front, the better off we are. And if we're to adopt this uh, in uh, right across Canada, let alone here in BC, uh, it, 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 let's talk a little bit, if you can, about your experience and your homework on the Quebec model and and, and you, you've already pointed out it's not just about cost efficiency. There has to be consideration at all times balanced towards quality. So what's the, what's the bottom line for BC parents and BC voters when we start talking and hearing all, all this summer about this daycare business? What's, what's our bottom line? We need access to daycare, but not just babysitting. We need a little quality education component together with the daycare. Well, what you need in order to have childcare is you need to have a workforce, um, and this is where our Achilles' heel is in this in this sector. Uh, we this is a sector we haven't valued, we've underpaid it. Um, so attention has to you know start right now um, about attracting and keeping people in this sector, and in many cases attracting them back. There are yeah. many early childhood educators that, you know, that are working elsewhere because they couldn't they couldn't practice their professional skills within mm-hmm. the within the programs that had hired hired them. Uh, so they've gone gone elsewhere. There's ways of there's ways of attracting them back. Uh, you know, if you actually provide them with 
decent wages. And it's, mm-hmm. and wages are one one thing I, I want to really focus on, on that. It's most educators, when we talk to them, they left the field, not because of the money. They left the field because because it was so difficult to that they didn't have access to the sorts of resources you need to be a good educator. So mm-hmm. think of a teacher in the school system. If she has challenges, she has a network of other expertise that she can go, go to. If you're right. an early childhood educator in a child care center, you've got a supervisor who doesn't know, frankly, know much more than you do, right? So right. you're on your own, right? And you're on your own, which is so criminal. During the most pivotal time of child development, when all of those foundational skills are set for life, um, and that's the one that we resource the least. And um, and by all means, let's get more kids into it. Let's ensure that parents aren't paying another mortgage in order to have their yes. their kids there. But let's really get a handle on just how little we have resourced this sector from the top to the bottom and put in place, you know, with the same kind of respect. I, that's the only thing I can think of. The same kind of respect we give the school system um, and wrap those kind of resources around an early childhood education. Carrie McQuaig, thanks very much for this. It's a very timely uh, conversation to have. And I have a, a sneaking suspicion that as we get into this election business and more and more of us become more aware of the early childhood component to the campaign, that you and I perhaps can have another conversation as we get into the thick of it later in the year. Are you game for that? Look forward to it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Carrie. It's, it's been a pleasure having you today. Friends, the article is at theconversation.com. You look for it on to Ottawa's $10 a day child care promise should heed Quebec's insights about balancing low fees with high quality. Written by Carrie McQuaig from the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Our thanks to Professor McQuaig this morning. We'll talk again. Canadian wholesale and manufacturing sales climbed higher in March after pulling back in February as Statistics Canada continues to pump out recent numbers. Uh, They said recently that those sales have hit their highest level since June of 2019 as they were up 3.5% in March. However, Statistics Canada said the semiconductor shortage is expected to continue and some manufacturers have announced plans to reduce output in some of their plants in Canada. We already know the automotive sector has been hit hard by the chip shortage. How about other uh, manufacturing sectors? Perhaps one of the best known Canadian brands, not only here in Canada, but around the world is Danby. And we're delighted to have the CEO of Danby, Jim Estill. Join us, Mr. Estill, on the line from Guelph, Ontario, the home of Danby Appliances. Mr. Estill, Jim, good morning and welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, sir. Uh, tell us a little bit about the chips, the semiconductor shortage, and how it's affecting Danby Canada and the home appliances that you are so famous for. Well, it's only just starting to uh, impact um, production and deliveries uh, because the supply chain, it takes almost a year by the time you uh, uh, you know, get the parts ordered and then get them assembled and get them uh, distributed and whatnot. But mm-hmm. the chip shortage is absolutely starting to hit the appliance uh, industry, and uh, 
the other problem the appliance industry has is appliances are not very expensive. If I was a chip manufacturer, I'm maybe not going to make a uh, $3 thermostat when I could be making a $20 uh, controller chip for a car or something uh, more expensive. So it's uh. creating a price pressure that is already rippled through, and I see continued inflation in uh, the price of freezers, refrigerators, wine coolers, all of those sorts of appliances. Mm, We have a Danby freezer in our house, Jim, and we're very happy with it. So in a typical Canadian small appliance, like a home freezer or something like that, how many semiconductor chips would be involved in one single unit in your home? Uh, There's really only uh, five or six. I mean, wine coolers have more because you often have a display, but uh, (laughs) with anything like that, if you're missing a thermostat, you can't make a freezer. So if if you're missing one tiny two dollar piece you can't um produce what you uh, need to produce and so the natural things oh let's go back to the old way where there's actually less chips used mm-hmm. but the, the reason chips were used are used are often for energy savings and sure. you can't go back to the old non-energy saving way and uh, manufacturing can't flip on a dime it just takes time to uh do everything although interesting um vaccines can only be stored in non-frost-free freezers because they can't take fluctuation in temperatures. So we did actually go back to non-frost-free freezers um, because the way a freezer stays frost-free is that the energy fluctuates, or the temperature fluctuates a little bit, mm-hmm. but you can't have that with, uh, with vaccines. But then when you do a vaccine freezer, tons more electronics because you've got the monitoring uh, of it for continuous uh, you know, to make sure it keeps a continuous temperature and you've got alarms and you've got stuff like that. And it doesn't seem like much, but these are all just chips. Sure. And you you uh, buy chips by the train load, I'm sure, Jim. Where, and you talk to us about the supply chain and the length of time it takes for, for, uh, for the whole thing to turn around. And you're saying a, a year is not an unexpected amount of time to make plans for. So where do you get your chips from? And are there alternative sources that you're already looking at? Well, uh, most of the chips come from China, and unfortunately, there isn't a lot of alternatives. Yeah, uh, It's not like sheet metal where you can kind of buy from one place or another. And to put a new chip fab online is exceptionally long-term, exceptionally expensive, and you can't put one of those things up for a year or like or two years. It's a long, mm-hmm. long process. So I don't see this improving uh, anytime soon unless consumers stop buying products but i think we've hit the inflection point where i don't i i just don't see this improving what will what it will do is it cause prices to go higher and then it becomes more lucrative for people to make parts because that was the other thing is that because of competition the, these people the, the companies would spend a billion dollars building a chip fab and then sure they're not making money because of the competition and now all of a sudden they decided they can make money and profiteer so uh, uh, your prediction, and, you, and we thank you for it, it's not a happy one to hear, Jim, but your prediction is as far as the Canadian consumer is concerned, and not with just your Danby products, but with similar manufactured products that contain chips, it's a pretty safe bet we're all going to pay more for those products in the short term for at least, what, a year or so? Uh, I think it's actually longer than a year. It's a year or okay. two. And you've got a lot of things that are causing price increases. The cost of logistics and container shipping is mm-hmm. through the roof. It's tripled in price. 
The cost of uh, sheet metal is through the roof. The cost, like it's 50% higher, cost of coppers, 60% higher. The cost of foam, you know, the insulation foam is double. Yes. So you've got all of these costs have gone up, and that is getting reflected in appliances. But it doesn't happen instantly because you've got inventory. You've got, uh, you know, you've got work in process. You've got all this stuff. So it just takes, you know, nine months to work through, six months, a year to work through. But I do see higher appliance prices um, next year, and I think it'll be for the next two or three years is my mm. uh, belief. Interesting stuff. I appreciate your time on, on a busy Sunday morning, Jim. Thank you so much. It's, uh, as I say, it's not the, the warmest message we could have possibly received, but a, a warning from someone in the business is always well heeded. We appreciate your time, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Jim Estill is the CEO of Danby uh, from Guelph, Ontario. This morning, the headquarters of Danby Appliances Manufacturing. And of course, another Canadian manufacturer hit hard by the shortage of chips. Not a happy time. In fact, there was a column written by Don Martin the other day entitled, Being Jason Kenney is the worst job in politics today. As uh, the Kenney government continues to, well, stagger from hits from the outside and from within, it's time to take a few moments and get an Alberta update. Always a pleasure to welcome Dwayne Bratt to the program. Dwayne is a professor of political science at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Professor Bratt, Dwayne, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you back, Dwayne. Uh, Mr. Kenny, uh, it's really unraveling remarkably for him. Bring us up to date quickly, if you can, Dwayne, because we, in the course of one week, we had the caucus chair calling for the resignation of the premier, which didn't happen. And in fact, the caucus chair and another member of caucus were forced to resign themselves. Give us some, some background of all of that. So this had been building for months. Uh, there had been rumblings uh, within the United Conservative Party around a leadership review, but it was all sort of anonymous sources calling for this. Mm-hmm. Then in early April, when there was a mild delay in reopening some of uh, the COVID restrictions, 17 uh, UCP backbenchers, including Todd, Todd Lowen and Drew Barnes, who I'll get to in a moment, signed a public letter criticizing that decision and and criticizing COVID restrictions in in general, Mm -hmm. but they never went on about Kenny's leadership or, or calling for his, his resignation, but they were clearly critical of the most important issue facing the the province and the government's decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then what broke, so this did not come out of the blue, right? This has been building for a while. And and Drew Barnes in particular has been a critic of Kenny on almost every issue. He was he was seen as like the opposition within the, the governing caucus. So when Todd Lowen, the caucus chair, releases this letter a little after midnight on, on Thursday, you know, all hell breaks loose. Oh yeah. Uh, there was there was supposed to have been a caucus meeting that morning. It had been canceled the day before, but they quickly rescheduled a new caucus meeting and they ended up expelling uh, both Todd Lowen and Drew Barnes in, in that meeting. But the meeting itself was fascinating. And th- this may be a bit uh, inside baseball, but it's it's really important to get these details in. It took seven hours. Wow. Normally, if someone challenges publicly the, the leader, you know, that's a 30-minute that's a conversation. That tells me that there was supporters of Lowen and Barnes within the party, within the governing caucus, who didn't want them expelled. 
then what is supposed to be a confidential meeting is live tweeted by a far right media outlet that has an axe to, to grind against Jason Kenney. So mm. this, everybody is watching the Western Standard as they keep updating it. It, it was just, it was a bizarre situ, situation. Then it wasn't a secret ballot. Uh, you had to text your message, your, your vote to the new caucus chair, and the results were, were never announced. So we don't know if it was unanimous. We don't mm. know if it was 50-50 or 60-40. We don't even know if they, the motion passed for crying out loud. So I don't think the turmoil ended. They, Kenny successfully put down the revolt on Thursday yes. by removing these two people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but are others going to walk out the door later on? Dwayne, the knock on, on Kenny, as I get it, he's gone from being that folksy guy in the blue pickup truck that ran around Alberta, uniting the Wild Rose and the progressive conservatives into something called the UCP, the United Conservative Party, rallied them around his flag, and they knocked off Rachel Notley and the NDP. That folksy guy in the blue truck then became premier and brought a cabal of people with him from Ottawa from his old days as a federal cabinet minister, and that small group of people surrounding him have been running the province of Alberta minus input from local people that are in his caucus and that's what caused a lot of the animosity it's a it's a sort of executive style leadership that involves very few on the ground actual Albertans now am I overstating it in terms of the outsiders no no I mean that is that is how it's viewed um, and very combative uh, advisors that the Issues managers and the people in the premier's office are frequently uh, on social media uh, attacking any any critics. And internally, it sounds like that same sort of bullying behavior exists amongst elected officials. Um, I will say Kenny was the architect of, of this merger, and he did bring the, uh, the two parties together. Sure, in an yeah. effort to defeat Andy, uh, Rachel Notley and the NDP. Right. Less, you know, two years ago, he wins a large majority government. Over a million people voted for the UCP. Um, he gets 55% of the vote. And then things have plummeted since. The populist aspect, though, I thought was always fake. I mean, yes, Jason Kenney got a blue truck. Yes, he traveled to every small town cafe mm. in, in across the province. But he did it in a blue blazer, <laughs> and it, he was never seen as a populist before that. I mean, this is right. a man who was a long-serving cabinet minister. He's an incredibly bright man. He's got great organizational skills. He's, he's, a, he's a political tactician, but he is not a populist. But that's how he portrayed himself. Yeah. And, and there may have been people who, who bought that. And so his popularity, and this is important to know, was dropping pre-COVID. Um, there were a whole series of non-COVID issues that, that, were, that were challenging. It's also a very difficult party to govern. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the federal uh, conservatives, they were separated for 15 years before they came together. They lost multiple elections before they came together. In this instance, they lost one election. And within two years, you know, this brand new party had been put together, but it was held together only through hatred of, of Rachel Notley and the NDP. There are right. huge cleavages between sort of the center moderates and, and the further right. 
um, between the legacy PCers and the legacy wild rovers, yeah. rural versus urban, cabinet versus backbench, premier's office versus elected officials, uh, social conservatives versus economic conservatives. It's a very tough party to govern. And then you throw a COVID health pandemic into the mix. Absolutely. Herding cats through a global pandemic on a good day is never, never fun. Dwayne, we've only got a minute left, and I'm always grateful for your time. It's fun to have you on the show. How about looking into that crystal ball, Professor Bratt? How's it going to work out for Kenny? He's still got a deal. He's got a pandemic with the highest uh, number of cases uh, on, a, on a fresh basis every day in the country uh, and a vaccine rollout that, along with the rest of the country, is painfully slow. What's his future look like trying to keep this factious party together? So if the the vaccine rollout is going extremely well, uh, we're gradually starting to see the case counts drop. Uh, The the numbers over the last two days have been quite good. Um, If this starts to work and you can gradually reopen society, reopen businesses, get the economy going, you're going to have a natural boost. But... uh, the question is, can he keep this group together in the next six weeks, the next two months as that, that occurs? It, there could very well be people leaving next week that, that are going to spend the weekend, you know, looking at their future, looking at Kenny's future, because yeah. the fact that he is so unpopular leads to this. I mean, if, if he was sitting at 60% in the polls, you don't have a caucus for the poll. When you're sitting sure. at 30% in the polls, and, are, and if an election was held today, Rachel Notley returns as, as Premier of Alberta. So wow. it's a necessary condition to get the vaccines out, to, to keep the restrictions in place until that occurs, to get the cases dropped and, and all of that. But even if all of that occurs, it's still going to be tough to keep this party together. And are people going to forget the last year and a half? I don't think so. Interesting stuff. Dwayne, Brad, always a pleasure. So we do appreciate your time. And uh, as this continues to unfold in my, isn't it colorful? We'll be checking back with you. You can pretty much bank on that. Thanks, Dwayne. Okay. Thanks, Sterling. A pleasure. Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Time to go back to Alberta because we're talking now about Line 5. This is the Calgary-based Enbridge company. And uh, the story's been in the papers a long time. They've been a long-running battle with Michigan over this cross-border pipeline. Concerns about the pipeline's condition, its potential environmental damages, or dangers, rather, have been brewing for years. But, of course, recently, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, gave the company a deadline to close the pipeline down. Of course, that hasn't happened. There are court cases involved. There are treaties, international treaties involved. The government of Canada has filed an intervention. It's a bit of a mess. Here to sort it all out uh, from the University of Calgary Law School is Professor Kristen Bendebiesenboss. Kristen, good morning and welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us. I hope we're going to be able to sort this thing out. Thanks, Sterling. It's great to be here. And I offer no guarantees on being able to sort it out. (laughs) Well, it's an awfully complicated story, but you know what's really interesting about this? And I saw a column in the Calgary Herald written by Alicia Corbella a few days ago, Kristen, Mm -hmm. about this. And she said, you know, maybe, just maybe, it would be a really good thing for Whitmer to actually get permission to close this thing down for even just a couple of weeks to give Ontario and Quebec a taste of what it would be like not to have this and suddenly have to rely on Alberta 
Canadian domestic supply as an alternative. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, in, in, in terms of teaching those central Canadians a bit of a lesson, if we can move a little beyond that, Kristen, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the arrangement that's existing. This pipeline goes from the United States underneath the St. Clair River, just north of Detroit, to Sarnia, Ontario. What happens then? Well, in Sarnia, it's actually refined into different uh, petrol products. So that's gasoline, jet fuel, and other types of petroleum products. Um, And I would also say, just sort of referencing back to the article that you mentioned, that even though Line 5 does actually begin in Superior, Wisconsin, it is carrying Canadian crude. Ah, from where? Yeah. from It's twist from the oil sands. It's from Alberta. Isn't that interesting? Do Ontarians even understand that? I don't know if they do, and it also sounds like maybe some Calgarians don't either. Well, I, um, but, I, I would uh, be surprised. Yeah, it's Canadian crude. Well, you see, now that is, that's a misconception already because I don't think Calgarians, I think a lot of Vancouverites would be in the same boat, assuming that because the pipeline or the source of, of the pipeline is somewhere in Wisconsin, we just right. assume that the petrol products flowing through the pipeline, Kristen, were, were, were American, and that's not the case at all. It's not the case. It's, it's actually quite complicated, even from a sort of, you know, just understanding Enbridge has a North American pipeline system and Line 5 is only part of it. So Line 5 begins in Superior, Wisconsin, but it's connected to a larger pipeline system that begins in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Ah, okay. So that's mm-hmm. Alberta crude flowing through the American that's system right. into Ontario and ultimately down to Quebec. And I think it's probably also important to point out that in terms of, of, of resources, uh, this is uh, this is more than half the crude, crude oil used in Ontario, and they say up to two-thirds of what gets consumed in Quebec as well. So this that's is right. a vital, vital piece of infrastructure, isn't it? It is. That's what makes this case so unusual. It's not a fight over building a pipeline. It's a fight over a pipeline, a particular segment of a pipeline that's been in place since the 60s, the 1960s. So, And it it has been, as you said, delivering a very large amount of the total oil that's consumed in eastern Canada, especially Ontario and Quebec. And so that makes it that makes it an, an unusual case. Certainly, we've seen lots of battles, political battles over pipelines that have yet to be built, but this mm-hmm. is one over a pipeline that has actually been in place for quite a while. So, what is Michigan's complaint here, if you would, Kristen? Mm-hmm. Be devil's advocate and tell us what <laughs> Governor Whitmer and her team see as the reason, this urgent reason to just shut this Blinken pipeline right down now. Michigan's concern is that the particular segment that they want to have removed is a twinned pipeline section that runs between, well, it it runs through the Straits of Mackinac, which is between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. So it's a very environmentally sensitive area because it's fairly shallow. There's quite a lot of boat traffic that goes through the Straits of Mackinac. And if there were a rupture in those twin segments of Line 5 that go through the Straits, it could potentially release oil into both of the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. So it could be you know, a very large-scale environmental disaster that depending on how long a leak were to go on and the size of the leak, it could be extremely difficult to reverse and mitigate damages from that. Okay, so that's, that's a perfectly understandable scenario, a worst-case scenario. Has this uh, particular st- uh, area, the strait that, that, with, that the, uh, the pipeline is going through now with all of that boat traffic, mm-hmm. has, that been, uh, has it been the case that way since the 60s, since the pipeline was built? Yes, it has been. This, this segment of the pipeline has never leaked, but it has been struck by anchors before. In fact, I okay. think, well, I, I don't think they know exactly whose ship struck it, but it was struck last in 2018. 
Um, and Enbridge inspected it at the time, and there was some there had been some scraping off of the anti-corrosion coating that's on the pipeline, but the pipeline itself was still intact. But that, that I think, really sort of solidified Michigan's fear that at any time there could be an accident like that where an anchor strike hits the, the segments of, of Line 5 under the straits and then there could be a, an oil spill. So from their perspective, that was a close enough call to set off the alarm bells, and it certainly did. Yes. And, you know, really, there's been concern for quite a while. There's a lot of concern. I think, really, Michigan sees itself as the guardians of um, the Great Lakes, which, of course, you know, that's not to say that Canadian provinces that border the Great Lakes don't also feel a sense of um, concern and and protection over them. They're a, a sensitive ecosystem that really interacts a lot with humans already because of all the the marine traffic on the Great Lakes. Right. Now, there's there are also international treaties involved. And uh, again, from the legal perspective here, has the government of Canada intervened formally in the process? And how do, how does that happen? Is Have we applied to uh, a court, for example, somewhere, a federal court in Michigan to stop the uh, the governor's orders to shut the pipeline down? Canada has not actually intervened in this case. It's not trying to assert itself as a party to the litigation. Instead, what Canada did is file what we call an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief to inform the judge in this case that Canada does have certain legal concerns and to inform the judge of Canada's legal position on these issues. But Canada is not actually a party. Okay, so then it would be the state of Michigan versus Enbridge that Canada would be filing this amicus brief into? That is what they did. They filed the amicus brief in the federal litigation in Michigan that's ongoing between the state of Michigan and Enbridge. Okay. Now there was a deadline that has come and gone established by the governor that uh, she wanted the pipeline closed down by. Uh, that's been ignored. Uh, to uh, to what end? Is, is that now antagonizing or exacerbating the government's anger or is it strengthening someone's position in court? Why the, why the non-compliance with the shutdown order? Well, the non-compliance, I think, is because from Michigan, well, from Enbridge's point of view, Michigan's authority to revoke the easement is the heart of its litigation. Uh, Enbridge is alleging on a few different sort of legal theories that Michigan doesn't actually have the power to revoke the easement, uh, including that international treaty that you mentioned. So from their perspective, they don't need to comply with the order until they get an order from the court saying yes or no to Michigan's ability to do this. Ah, so they're waiting for some kind of uh, a court of uh, 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 opinion on the efficacy of the treaty. Does this fall within the the uh, categories established by the treaty, and therefore subject to whatever language is there? So, Sterling, that is actually the whole heart of the legal matter that's before the federal court in Michigan now. The 1977 Pipeline Transit Treaty between the United States and Canada has actually never been tested in a court before. Ah. So it, just reading it, it does look like what it says is that no public official in either the U.S. or Canada can permanently cease the flow of hydrocarbons between the two countries. So it appears on its face that it does apply in this situation, but the Biden administration has not made clear their position on it, and they're the ones that would have to assert the treaty power to tell the governor of Michigan, you cannot do this because it would be a treaty violation. Oh, interesting. So we're not formally involved, but we are making our our, our, our position known, and that's uh, through perfectly legal channels, too, with this amicus brief, right? 
Exactly right. I think that it's a very careful political calculation, not necessarily a legal one, but a political one, whether you want to come out and say that you think the United States is violating a treaty. So I think what Canada is doing is stating its position, but in such a way that it doesn't take a confrontational stance with the U.S. government. And also, uh, I would think, and we need to take a break here, but I, I would think there would also be, in terms of the po- the politics of it all, and of course, we are in an election year. We're assuming it's going to happen sometime this year, Kristen. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Liberal Party, the government of Canada, has a, a sort of a delicate eggshell walk to do when it talks about pipelines now, doesn't it? It does. And this pipeline in particular, because it's aware, I think the Canadian government is very aware of the fact that Governor Whitmer is a close political ally of President Biden. Right. And uh, Mr. Biden, do you think, would be predisposed to be sympathetic to Michigan and uh, Ms. Whitmer's position on this? I think so. But I think that the president is also sympathetic to Canada's position, which is why the U.S. government, I believe, is waiting also to hear what the court is going to say. Because if the court says the treaty applies, then the Biden administration sort of has cover to say, oh, the treaty applies. I'm sorry, Governor Whitmer, but you can't do this. Sure, of course. So, uh, therefore, the, there's a lot resting on the shoulders of this judge hearing this case. And and uh, what sort of uh, expectation do you and all of the participants have, Kristen, with respect to some kind of timely resolution? Okay, we're going to shut it down or not? I don't necessarily anticipate a timely resolution. The two parties are in court-ordered mediation right now, and I think the federal judge was perhaps hopeful that there might be an agreement reached between the two parties in the mediation. But given the fact that Michigan went ahead and officially revoked the easement, and of course Enbridge has said they don't recognize the validity of that until the court tells them they have to, that sort of puts the parties in a position where it doesn't seem likely that they're going to come to an agreement anytime soon. And this morning, is oil flowing uh, through that pipeline into Ontario? Yes, it is. Okay, so Enbridge is is going with, it stays as is until we're informed otherwise by the judge. That's right, exactly right. Our guest joining us from the University of Calgary Law School, Professor Kristen van de Biesenbos. We're talking about the Line 5 pipeline, which uh, carries Canadian crude from Wisconsin down through uh, Michigan across the, uh, the, the to Ontario, to the refineries in Sarnia, and then on to uh, Quebec and, and uh, other parts of eastern Canada. The uh, governor of Michigan uh, issued an order to have that pipeline shut down. The pipeline's operator, Enbridge, ignored the order. There's a big court case underway in which the government of Canada has uh, joined as at least a friend of the court to basically let the courts in in, in Michigan know uh, the degree of importance this pipeline represents to Canada, particularly, of course, Ontario and Quebec. And and I suppose as a sidebar, Kristen, we should note that the city of Sarnia, a major Canadian refining centre, would lose an enormous amount of of, uh, its workforce and its job, its employment sector, if this were to be turned off as well. It's a big deal in Sarnia, isn't it? It is a big deal. And that's, I think, also sort of tells you something about the different dynamics that are in play when you're talking about shutting down a working pipeline as opposed to one that hasn't been constructed yet. Yeah, uh, we did open up the phone lines and uh, we, we're going to include our callers going forward. Let's let's talk to George and Ladner here. He's been waiting the longest. George, good morning. Go ahead, please. Oh, hi, George here. Yeah, got you, George. Go ahead to our, our guest in Calgary, please, on pipelines. Uh, uh, I just had a question about the uh, refinery in Cherry Point, Washington. Uh-huh. Uh, and I believe it gets its oil from 
the um, Trans Canada Pipeline. Um, Kristen, do you know that the uh, the uh, it's a refinery at Cherry Point in Washington State? Uh, most of the uh, the petrol products that are refined at Cherry Point do they originate in Canada or the United States? Uh, Sterling Offset and George as well. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but it is possible. Trans Canada also owns a number of different international pipelines to transport Canadian crude to the U.S. for refining. Right. And what was the the point of the question, George? Well, I was just wondering uh, how that was related to the one that uh, the pipeline that was killed by Biden that came from Alberta down through Dakota uh, and through the states. I forget the oh. name of it. No, uh, Kristen will know. You remember. Uh, thanks, George, for the call. He's I appreciate it. And, yeah, and, sure. And that's right. And that's that's the uh, that's another uh, act. I believe it was on. Was it his first or second day as president of the United States? He did close down. It was the Keystone XL, wasn't it, Kristen? It was Keystone XL, and he did do it on his first day. Wow. So what impact yes. has that already had? It's only been 100 days since Biden's been around. What impact has that already produced in Alberta? Well, uh, so it, it's not entirely clear what impact it's uh, not yet. It's not totally clear what impact. It, I mean, it hasn't actually changed much about the level of production that was already happening in the oil sands. Okay. Um, because this is a pipeline that wasn't built yet, right? So it, it's not that it did anything to change production levels. What it might have done, there was a huge dollar investment made by the Alberta government in that pipeline. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And so what we haven't seen in Alberta yet is potential fallout of that investment because Alberta's government has publicly stated, stated that it would like to pursue legal avenues to try to get its investment back. But whether or not it can actually do that is a very different question. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to the point that I made uh, earlier in our conversation, coming back to this point, Leisha Corbella is an editorial writer in Calgary. That it, she's from Vancouver originally, so that's why she's so good. But she wrote a little piece recently about, uh, and and I've seen it echoed in other papers and other uh, blogs uh, across Western Canada in the wake of this de- this demand from Michigan that this pipeline be closed permanently uh, uh some some have said well you know it, it would be probably healthy for ontario and quebec to just have this experience of having it turned off not permanently but it'll feel permanent after a couple of days and impact almost immediately upon their economy and perhaps a, a lesson could be learned as to the value of more reliable domestic supply through domestically controlled sources as in a a trans-Canadian pipeline. So do you think that there's some validity to Leach's column and others just like it? I'm not sure that I agree with that. I don't think, so this is sort of my non-legal personal opinion, but I don't think that I would support trying to teach people a lesson by causing them serious economic harm and, and uh-huh. you know, job losses in places like Sarnia. Um, and I'm not really sure that you can ever in advance guarantee that people are learning the lesson that you want them to learn from doing something like that. Plus, I'm not really sure how you have this segment of the pipeline shut down for just a few days. Um, there's really only one way. It's either shut down or it continues working. Ah, and with that in mind, a uh, final couple of final questions to you. Uh, in terms of turning off the tap, Alberta gave itself permission to do precisely that to British Columbia a year or so ago. They haven't done anything about it. What do you think about that legislation then and that that tool in the kit that is yet to be used? Well, certainly it's something that I do think sometimes there is a sense of frustration in Alberta that, it, you know, when you have so much opposition outside and, and honestly within the province, too, 
uh, to pipeline construction, it can get very frustrating for people because there's a sense that um, there's a disconnect between people's objections to pipelines and their understanding of their own reliance on the products that pipelines carry. Yes. And because everyone relies so heavily on fossil fuels, even if they don't realize it, um, that means that if you begin shutting down the pipelines, you will instead not necessarily affect the rate of production, but shift the transportation to more dangerous forms like rail and tanker. Yeah, and that's I just got an email from Jim who says uh, exactly that, Kristen. He said could be lots of jobs being created in the tank car manufacturing industry, and he's right, right because that 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 pet, that petroleum is going to travel. It's going to get delivered one way or another. And and you're right, it's the whole surface uh, rail uh, transport uh, option is infinitely more dangerous than any pipeline and uh, to your point uh, jim just agreeing with you here Kristen, this morning that it's not an option that's very welcome yeah i don't I, i'm not sure if a lot of people even really think about it in terms like that um, pipelines in particular have become very controversial and you know it's a lot of different interest groups that that are against them for different reasons too which makes the the situation even more complex Indeed. Well, we do appreciate your joining us on a Sunday morning, Kristen, to uh, help clarify and help to understand a little more about what's going on behind Line 5. It's very much in the news. It's going to be there for a while, and hopefully our listeners this morning have a better understanding of what the story is all about and the backstory as well. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Sterling. Kristen Van Boss, a professor of law at the University of Calgary. Joined on the line by Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, we're going to talk patios again for another summer. Sarah, good morning. It's been a while. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. In our next hour, Sarah, Mark von Schellwitz from Restaurants Canada is going to join us to talk about survival and how, how many of those restaurants still hanging by a thread are hoping to make it through to the point where they can actually start seeing patrons inside once again. Still quite a ways away, but the interim step, as was the case last summer, you and I had several good chats about it, the interim step that worked well last summer appears to be set to roll for this summer. You had a number, was it 500 uh, a patio approvals have already taken place in Vancouver so far this year, Sarah? Yeah, we're north of 500 of what we call the TEP now, or the Temporary Expedited Patio Program Permits, um, and those are permits that, you not permit patios that restaurants already had previously, but brand new patios that from the new program we put in place so that restaurants can make better use of public space uh, in order to be able to operate and to distance people during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, just, just one question for you, and this has come up in other cities as well. Carol and I were driving down Main Street the other day, heading south on Main Street after uh, 25th, and they get into that nice, uh, funky area where a lot of new patios have sprung up. They look kind of pop-up-ish. They're right there in a lane of what used to be traffic, and all of a sudden there's a bit of a wooden corral around a bunch of tables and chairs, and they were all full, by the way, the other day. But my point, Sarah, here is the safety matter. There were no barricades uh, anywhere near any of those patios and and i'm just curious as uh, as has been in the experience in other cities are there plans at vancouver city hall to cooperate with those patio owners and i know there are expenses involved but what about safeguards for patrons sitting there in what used to be a lane of traffic so the city of vancouver staff have been um inspecting uh, different patios to ensure that we're some we're making sure that health and safety comes first. Uh, you will have seen some concrete barriers go in at some locations, such as in front of restaurant patios downtown. Um, and they'll continue to do that to ensure that safety is the top priority. Yeah. 
And I, we, we talked to the folks in White Rock yesterday, and what they're doing is they're using those uh, water-filled uh, orange barricades around the temporary patios they're going to put up along their marine drive this summer. So that also is an option. And I would think less expensive, unless you're a big city like Vancouver and have actual places full of concrete barriers, you can, you can move around town pretty easily. Yeah, I, I think I think the name of the game here is being creative. Like you said, um, the patios went up really quickly last summer as a, an immediate sort of re- response to the pandemic to keep our small businesses afloat um, and help them operate. And so, yes, we continue to be flexible as we move ahead to make sure that uh, they still work for business, but they're safe for people too. Yeah, and counselor, this summer uh, you're you're a step ahead of yourself from where we were last summer, and that is you've decided that uh, in addition to lobbying extensively for patios and more approvals uh, and faster approvals to happen at City Hall, you're also now talking about creating circumstances, Sarah, where small groups of people can gather. You're talking about those musicians whom you were quoted as saying are absolutely starving for an audience, and of course you're right, but somehow or another connecting musicians and performers with an audience in limited numbers at first. Explain how you, you'd like to see this happen. Yeah, so one of the things that I'm proposing and brought forward, it'll be on the council agenda this week, is um, to sort of really envision, a, <coughs> excuse me, coffee's kicking in, um, to really envision a Granville Street promenade um, and do a pilot program for this summer uh, where the two blocks of Granville Street starting from Smythe to Helmican is shut down to vehicle traffic. Um, and ideally buses, and that enables a lot of space for people to spread out where picnic tables and other things can be set up and people to enjoy the restaurants and the takeout. But also, it'll give a chance to get sort of musicians and local buskers back in that haven't had a chance to perform for an audience during the pandemic. And we do know as our vaccination numbers are increasing that once we get to that critical mass, we'll be able to have those small events. But in the meantime, having buskers that are well-spaced in this sort of promenade style, imagine some nice greenery outside and some tables and being able to just enjoy being outdoors and listen to some music, I think would be huge because our arts and culture sector has was just decimated by the pandemic and they haven't been able to come back yet because of restrictions. So um, I think that would add a lot for people and some new public space in the city and, and a lot for our musicians. Yeah, we do an arts corner on, on our show every Sunday. We've been talking to the to the community for over a year, and you're absolutely right. They're just completely strapped and, and desperate to perform, and, and still, of course, under a, a pretty tight restriction. So now we're talking about this Granville Mall proposal that you're going to make, Sarah. Is this just weekends only? Because, of course, we've been through the Granville pedestrian mall experiment in the past in this city. So what, what specifically would you do? Shut it down, what, Friday at noon until Sunday at midnight that kind of thing yeah we're proposing friday evening saturdays and sundays for the pilot looking at um ideally doing it say july through september um and i think the things a lot of things have changed since um the previous granville street um options that you talked about because there's a real focus on public space now and i actually think that's a legacy that's going to extend beyond the pandemic and it should Mm -hmm. have taken a pandemic for us to get really bold and creative with our use of public space in the city. Um, but look at how people have responded to it. And so I, I think that there's an opportunity and kind of a, you know, a bit of a responsibility for us to build back better um, and be more creative with our use of public space. So this is a great way to demonstrate that. And there's just such a huge appetite for people to have a more people-friendly, pedestrian-friendly city. 
Right. Now, uh, this, of course, all relies heavily on the uh, the circuit breaker being uh, uh, halted after the May long weekend. And as you've already alluded to, Sarah, the vaccine rollout continuing at its current rate. And if anything, it's expected to pick up a little bit. What sort of intelligence do you have at City Hall with respect to long term planning for this year? Because you're talking about, you know, Granville Mall being pedestrian on the weekends over the summer. But as you plan for more events in the fall and all the rest of it, what are your experts telling you about likely uh, herd immunity reality numbers and and dates? Are we talking Labor Day, uh, Thanksgiving, in terms of achieving that very important herd immunity? Well, I think everybody's playing it by ear. I think we're about, what, 50% of uh, adults being vaccinated now, and um, we're hearing from sort of this, the federal health authorities that we need to get beyond that 70% to sort of start permitting events in in a bigger way. One of the things I brought forward to council also um, is to make sure that the city is ready to turn around and permit those small events in our public spaces as quickly as possible, just as we did for the temporary patios so that we can get sort of the arts and culture groups back and get events happening outside. Um, But don't keep in mind too, we've had some sort of um, COVID proof activities like pop-up plazas um, throughout the city over the last year. And we're still proceeding with some new ones of those. So you'll see some of those neighborhood pop-up plazas like off Canby Street, Fraser Street. Um, there'll be a new one on Robson um, coming up uh, on the 800 plaza behind the art gallery, that new plaza that was finished, and a new one oh, yeah. on West 4th. And those little neighborhood style plazas, similar to what we're talking about for Gramble, Gramble Street on a smaller scale, but a great place with outdoor seating that's communal and people can just go and enjoy it or, again, get takeout and just enjoy the local neighborhood. It's a place to be um, and sort of be around other people and connect. And those have been operating successfully all through last summer and some are still running now. So we're also looking at starting those up at uh, the end of this month. Yeah. Councillor Kirby Young, a final question to you this morning. And, and it, it just it's about pandemic fatigue. And we, we saw it on Friday night at English Bay. We saw a little bit more of it last night. Groups gathering when they shouldn't in large numbers. People are just and you, you talked about it in terms of a tremendous appetite for performances and seeing uh, people being able to gather and listen to a little music, that kind of thing. But of course, we're not quite there yet. And yet there's this this, uh, you know, this pent up demand is what we're all hearing about and that could be translated into pandemic fatigue or call it what you will but some advice if you will for just making it through to the point where that herd immunity is is effective when and we're getting closer to that every day Uh, i think i think the advice is stay positive and hang in there and i think that's why the city are trying to bring so many of these things forward and some advice i would say is you know get out and enjoy the outdoors enjoy these plazas um, you can do all of that. Just stay well-spaced. And there's lots of other great things you can do. Our, our public pools are opening on the main long weekend. That's so right, yeah. That's just a week away from that. Um, to be able to get outdoors and enjoy a swim. I mean, we've got spectacular pools. When I was on the park board, um, that was one of my favorite things, to go through that opening process every week when you're at Second Beach or, or Kitts Beach or at New Brighton. I mean, you don't get those kind of views and those opportunities in other cities. So I would say do those things um, and, you know, stay positive and enjoy the public space. And we're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting the vaccinations moving quickly. Indeed it is. Sarah Kirby Young, a pleasure. We haven't talked for a while. It's great to have you back on the show. And we will have lunch on a patio this summer. We never actually accomplished it last year. We, so. we, we didn't. I'm going to take you up on that. I'm going to follow up and make sure we make, get that done. I look forward to it. Thank you there for this this morning. Much appreciated. You take care.
Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby Young, formerly NPA, now independent. And we'll talk about that next time we get together. Quick little local history lesson. This is about the Hope Station House. In 1916, a year after the Canadian Northern Railway completed its transcontinental line from Vancouver to Montreal, the Hope Station House was built at a cost of 7250 bucks. This is 1916. That was big dough. In 1942, the Hope Station House was the first stop for many of the 22,000 Japanese Canadians who were unjustly and forcibly removed from the west coast of British Columbia. Nearly 8,000 of those citizens stepped foot on the platform at the Hope Station as it was the connector to the rest of the province and internment sites. And more recently, in the 1950s, the station house was graced by royalty because during a royal tour across Canada by a very young then Queen Elizabeth, she stopped in Hope and said hello to the folks. This all is available to you at Save the Station House, save the hope station house.ca. Save the hope station house.ca. From the Hope Station House Preservation Society, a pleasure to welcome back Christian Ward to the show. Mr. Ward, Christian, good morning. Welcome back. Hi, good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me back. It's good to have you, Christian. I hope you didn't mind uh, my, my interjecting a little bit of the history of the building, but by way of understanding how the sense of urgency that you and your group in Hope and Area have towards this building, it's important, I think, to identify its historical relevance, and it is. So tell us about the petition and where we are this weekend. Okay, so um, we started the petition back in December of last year um, to basically petition the District of Hope um, to help them change their minds in deciding to demolish the building. So to date, we have got just over 2,700 signatures on the petition. And importantly, we also have a stop work order from the province um, and an investigation looking into the history of the building Mm -hmm. um, and looking at alternatives to demolition. So we're we're in a good a good place right now considering uh, the progress that we've made Indeed. Now, Christian, who, uh, given the demolition option here, let's talk about that for a second, because clearly you have literally, uh, you're in the process, it's not a fait accompli by any means, but you're in the process of literally trying to save a heritage building from demolition. So whose idea was it to demolish the place in the first place? Uh, Well, the building currently sits on land owned by the Ministry of Transport, and the Ministry of Transport, the lease that the District of Hope has for um, the land was coming to an end at the end of May this year and the Ministry of Transport wanted the land cleared whether that would be to transfer the building to someone else or to remove it from the land or to demolish it and the District of Hope chose the demolition option. I see. So the, the, in terms of the demolition option, that was one that was uh, looked at by the, this, the local government because I would imagine, Christian, it is because it's the least expensive option. So talk to us about the alternatives, one of which would be simply to move the building to another location. Is that what this petition is all about? Or is the idea to save the, the uh, Hope train station and keep it where it is? Oh, really? I mean, we're <clears throat> the... The intention of the campaign is to preserve the building and um, and relocate it if necessary. Okay. 
Um, we're interested in preserving the history in the building and ensuring that the building becomes a part of the community and hope for the future. All right. Now, uh, would there be uh, available space? Is there an alternative site already in mind that has either been purchased or donated or is being contemplated in some way? I think this is really the um, content of the investigation that's being done by the province right now um, in that they're going to be um, talking to all stakeholders involved, involved and looking at when they're looking at the options for not demolishing the building they're going to be looking at, at land and all of those sorts of things so it's a complex process really because there are a lot of different stakeholders involved sure are you aware i'm sure as a, as as a, a very active person involved in this preservation uh push uh you have probably a site or more in mind or do you yet i think uh, it's it's been a difficult situation for station house supporters in that the the building itself is still owned by the district um and i think our efforts to date have been um necessarily focused on saving the building from demolition right um but that you know there are a whole host of options for this building um there are vacant sites that would be ideal for this building within hope um district owned sites um where we're asserting that the Hope Station House would be perfect as an information centre and museum, uh, which mm-hmm. the District of Hope needs. And the old information centre and museum site in Hope is currently available. Um, so that that's just one option that we're that we're interested in pursuing. Not bad. Now, of course, all of this involves a certain amount of expense to take an, a heritage building and move it no matter how far. And I'm assuming it's a matter of a few kilometers within the Hope area. Uh, it's still a, an enormously expensive undertaking. So I'm sure the district uh, would be. Uh, have you have you thought about approaching the district from the point of view of if we can perhaps uh, not only generate the interest in preserving the building uh, through a petition, but suppose we have a campaign, some kind of financial financing campaign, some kind of GoFundMe thing, where we can generate a percentage of the costs and take a bit of the burden off the district to pay the, sh- the full shot, would that be a, a negotiating point your group might a- approach them with? I think it's worth acknowledging that um, the current government is um, extremely supportive of heritage and is committed to funding heritage um, through the provision of grants. And this is what we know, really, that um, over a period, if we take this project over a period of time, we take a step-by-step approach um, Mm -hmm. in approaching for grants. The building as the Information Centre and Museum would uh, receive um, its allotted amount of of money from the district. But I think, you know, I can understand how people are, particularly during the pandemic, uh, worried about the financial implications of restoring a building. Sure. But I think, I think if we look at the climate that we're in right now, where if we look at Heritage BC research that shows that heritage tourism is the fastest growing tourism sector in Canada, mm-hmm. and rehabilitating the station house is actually an opportunity to invest in Hope's future. And that's a future where the station house is part of Hope's financial security. So it's actually an, an investment. Um, and I think that's, that's how that's the angle that we should be looking at at this in 
Okay. Christian, I'm almost out of time, and I want to make sure that you include uh, an opportunity to invite everyone to join the Wednesday Honkathons. Uh, or are they still happening? Um, well, at the moment, I would um, I would ask people who want to get involved to visit our website, which is hopeforthestationhouse.ca. So, um, I think the website you gave out at the beginning was not quite right, but it's hopeforthestationhouse.ca. Oh, okay. Um well, one last thing I did want to touch upon, um, mm-hmm. if there's time, is that um, elder internees of Tashmi have um, joined our campaign and written letters in support of saving the station house. So I think that they showed immense courage in writing these letters to the District of Hope to talk about their story and their involvement. And I think they show... Um, you know, a lot, a lot of inspiration and they model great leadership for us in how we can use the past to make us better together and how we can actually learn from them. Well, we wish you considerable success. Uh, And it's not over yet. This is still very much a work in progress. Remind us again of the address that you would see our uh, listeners visit online. What's that address again, Christian, please? That's hopeforthestationhouse.ca. All right. Very much appreciate your joining us again. This is far from done. We'll talk more as uh, this uh, story unfolds. Thank you, Christian. Some facts for you here. According to the April Labor Force Survey from Statistics Canada, more than 71% of the over half million jobs still missing from the Canadian economy in the wake of COVID-19 are from the food service sector. And here in British Columbia, food services businesses need an exemption from the scheduled scale back of the wage and rent subsidies to bring back some of those jobs, over 43,000 of them here in B.C. Here to talk about this is Mark Von Schelwitz, Vice President, Western Canada for Restaurants Canada, a group behind this initiative to see these subsidies and scale backs pushed back to help restaurants survive. Mark, good morning. Welcome back. It's been a while. Good morning, Sterling. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us. Let's let's flesh some of these labor force numbers out. 71% of, uh, there are 503,000 jobs still out there missing in the wake of COVID. And of that, uh, 71% are from the food service sector. And here in BC, Mark, that's over 45,000 jobs still missing from the workforce, right? Correct, yeah. And we've said right from the outset, Sterling, that you know we're going to be one of the hardest hit and take one of the longest time periods to recover from COVID-19 based mm-hmm. on the restrictions and their impact in the industry. And in BC, you know, we're the third largest private sector employer, so restaurants are certainly key to feeding BC's recovery and bringing back jobs. Uh, but first, they need to survive. And uh, right. you know, if these if these supports are scaled back too soon, they certainly won't have the working capital they need to transition from survival to revival. And the last thing we want to see is another second wave of restaurant closures. And of course, that means another second wave of layoffs. And what we really are focused on is a restaurant relief support package that will ensure that we can bring back those remaining jobs and uh, have British Columbia's hospitality industry really help BC's recovery from COVID-19 once we start relaxing these restrictions, hopefully over the summer. 
Yeah, we'll talk patios and other uh, interim measures in a bit, Mark. But let's let's talk specifically about what you're asking for. But even before that, let's talk about the measures that are in place right now to assist those people in the food service industry with respect to uh, the uh, rent subsidies, wage subsidies. What programs are there now? And what is the timeline that will see them scaled back that is so concerning to so many here in B.C.? Right. I guess, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to all levels of government. I mean, there have been a number of supports that have been put in place to help us survive with COVID-19. But by far, the two most important programs are the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy and the Canadian Emergency Rent Subsidy. And of course, in the budget, they announced that those two support programs would be phased out starting in June. Uh, you know, I think 60% down to 40% and then down to 20% in August. And by September 25th, they wouldn't be there at all. And given the situation where we've got eight out of ten of our members are, that are still losing money, uh, you know, we've got forty-five percent of our members that are saying without these supports, uh, uh, you know, they're in danger of closing their businesses because over the past fourteen months they've been incurring more and more debt each month. They've been consistently losing money. Uh, And it's going to take a while in an industry like ours with very low margins uh, to get back to a profitability. You know, when we've got 70% of our people saying that it's going to take more than a year to recover, um, you know, we need, I guess, a bit of a bridge to get us to where we're profitable. And let's keep in mind as well, Sterling, that over the summer, I mean, we're still in a full indoor dining lockdown here in BC. Mm -hmm. And even once they start to reopen things, we're likely still going to have physical distancing, which is going to impact capacity. And we're not even going to be in a full operating capacity probably until after these subsidies are are gone. And, uh, you know, what our members are telling us very clearly is, uh, you know, without those two really important programs in particular, um, you know, it doesn't look good. They're not going to be able to pay back their debt. They're not going to be able to, to recover. And at some point, uh, you know, uh, that's going to have a huge impact on the economy, on our recovery. Uh, with our businesses closing, it uh, impacts uh, a lot of jobs here in B.C. Absolutely. The ripple effect is considerable, isn't it, Mark? So let's talk a little bit about what you specifically on behalf of the restaurant sector or the food services sector are are asking, because you talk about the rent subsidies and the wage subsidies, both of which are federal programs and the timeline established in the budget. We'll see uh, those programs, essentially those recipients of those programs weaned off uh, the the money by the fall. So here in BC, are you petitioning the British Columbia government for a sector-specific bailout, or are you, are you approaching Ottawa or both? Uh, basically, all levels of government we have to approach and ensure that there are some policies in place to help sh- make sure we can get to that place where restaurants are, are profitable again. And some of the examples of, uh, of um, what we think we need is, uh, obviously, the restaurant sector specifically should get that extension of the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy through April 2022, also with the Canadian emergency rent subsidy till April 2022. Uh, We're also calling for, you know, those uh, loan programs and everything that part of that money be repaid. And, uh, you know, there also should not be any punishments for this new Canada um, 
recovery hiring program, for example. And provincially, again, the province has done a, a, an admirable job on some things to help the industry. Wholesale pricing comes to mind, uh, the cap on delivery fees. Uh, so we, we look forward to working with them. And of course, we have uh, the recovery grant and, and the circuit breaker grant, although we have had some eligibility concerns. But the biggest thing provincially that we want to make sure happens is that the province doesn't do any more harm. You know, um, we've got a big minimum wage increase coming again in June. Right, we've yep. got these new, um, uh, we've got the new vaccination leave, paid sick leave, and you know, in, on the environmental file, there's likely going to be some new regulations that are going to cost our, our members more money. So what they're saying is, look, now's the worst time to sort of add more costs or any more regulatory burden onto our industry when we're already so close to uh, to the edge when it comes to being able to be viable to operate or not. So uh, those are just a few of the examples. The other thing that we want to uh, see happen is sort of what Prince Edward Island has done. And once we get into that more recovery stage for, the, for our tourism partners and ourselves, some sort of a plan to help uh, uh, increase consumer confidence so that, you know, we're encouraging people to get out there and get out to restaurants and, and other tourism and hospitality businesses and hotels, for example. So uh, I think there's a lot more that the all levels of the government can do. But, uh, uh, you know, and I noticed you had the councillor on before in your earlier segment. Great what the city of Vancouver has been doing as well with patios and those types right. of things. So we need that to continue. And I think one of the concerns for our members is, is that, okay, well, as soon as basically we can ra- relax restrictions that we're going to be operating 100% and back to normal. But uh, that's not going to be the case. It's going to take us a long time to get back to normal. And you've got to remember, we're likely going to be into some sort of restrictions still for several more months to come here when it comes to physical distancing, uh, as, as an example. Well, and even if you're a small business and you're just barely hanging on literally by the skin of your teeth and somebody from City Hall says, hey, you can have a patio if you want. That'll help boost a little bit of sales, keep the kitchen on. Uh, then you've got to go. You've got to go shell out money for tables and chairs. And I'm, I'm saying, of course, it's a necessary expense, Mark, but you're probably going to borrow the money that because you've already spent the reserves on the the uh, the, the, the plexiglass uh, partitions between the seats and all the other health considerations that have been baked into the regular regulations, all of which is straight out of the pocket of the business. And so even the patio is an expense before it turns into revenue. The recovery time will take, you're you're suggesting a year. I think it'll probably take even longer than that, but even to level off, it's going to take a year, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, and the macro level, Sterling, what we saw in 2020 over 2019 is in British Columbia alone, our food service industry sales dropped by a quarter, about 25%. And we're not yeah. forecasting uh, that we're going to return to those 2019 sales levels until 2023. Uh, what we're talking about, and I think there's about 30% of our members that are saying that it's going to take them two years to recover, or yes. certainly more than a year and a half. So so it is a long process, and we have to ensure that uh, that governments recognize that. So, uh, and the other thing I just want to point out is uh, obviously help wherever you can and and, uh, really feel fortunate that British Columbians have really shown a lot of support for the local restaurants. They're using takeout and delivery and they're they're helping where we can as far as outdoor dining is concerned. But, you know, that to your point, I mean, they've spent a lot of money trying to do this with the uncertainty as well of not sure, okay, 
well, some new restriction could come on and we just spent all that money for nothing to try and right. convert these patios. So this happened in Alberta, for example, where they were in the same boat as us, but now uh, they had their second wave or their third wave, which was worse. So as a result of that, they shut down all the That's right. They're closed right delivery. back down, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So the other big thing that I'm hearing from our members and what the provincial government can do, and, and that is give us a reopening plan so we can plan for the next few months and what operations will likely look like based on the restrictions. So, you know, something similar to what Saskatchewan did. I mean, you can choose whatever metrics you want, but uh, but that way at least we can start planning sort of like, okay, well, likely by June such and such we can reopen the indoor dining and mm-hmm. maybe by such and such a date we can remove the two-meter distancing or or the restriction that is existing right now on the cap on liquor sales at 10 p.m. You know, those are the types of things that uh, we would love to get as much information on as possible, as early as possible, to help plan those operations. And and they're very frustrated when these last-minute orders come out uh, where they haven't had time to prepare, with their ordering, their scheduling, uh, that type of thing. So, uh, you know, it's tough out there, but uh, I'm really, really uh, thankful that we've got uh, some really keen entrepreneurs out there because uh, uh, I'm surprised, quite frankly, how many of them have consistently lost money month over month, keep going into worse and worse debt. They're obviously in a lot worse financial situation now than they were a year ago. You're and they bad. need all those assistance to, to, to get through it, whether it be utilities, property taxes, uh, you know, just working capital, period, rent assistance. These things are critical. And, you know, you tell our, ask our members, if they, if those two most important programs, the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy, weren't in place, we would see the 10 to 15% uh, of restaurants that have closed at least double. So these have been really critically important uh, programs to keep the industry in survival mode until we can actually return to some semblance of profitability. Our guest is Mark Von Schoetz, the Western Vice President for Restaurants Canada, talking about, uh, well, uh, schemes and devices and ways of extending programs that are already in place that are being scaled back or are planned to be scaled back, according to the federal budget, by the fall. Mr. Von Schoetz and his members arguing that those programs need to stay in place longer, preferably if at all possible, Mark, for a year. If they could stretch this for a year, that would that would make the difference in a lot of cases, right? Uh, definitely, Sterling. And I guess the other thing that we should mention here is why we're seeing sector-specific is, you know, a lot of these supports are geared to all small businesses. And of course, mm-hmm. not all small businesses are in the same category is when you talk of retailers, food service, etc. You know, some of these small businesses are still doing well. It all depends how much the, the COVID restrictions are impacting their operations. In our case, and of course, any events, uh, tourism, hotels, we're in a whole different situation. So what we're saying to the governments as well is you have to have some industry-specific things that are geared towards that particular industry to help them recover, especially an important one like ours, which is, you know, the third largest employer in the province. We're Mm -hmm. saying we need a little bit of a special sort of unique tailored packages to help our industry's needs specifically. Have you had any um, appetite response, by the way, from either the feds or the province with respect to these proposals you're putting before them? Uh, certainly, we have something called our, our Restaurant Revival Working Group, which meets regularly with, uh, you know, a representative of the federal government, uh, officials, uh, ministering's office, for example. And here in BC, as you know, we've been we've had a very good working relationship with Minister Kalon, and and really appreciate how quickly he responded for the circuit breaker uh, grant mm-hmm. funding. 
but we still do have some problems uh, as far as eligibility criteria where we still have a lot of our members that, that aren't able to qualify for those provincial supports that we're working on. And certainly we've made it very clear to them as well that, you know, now is not the time, guys, to add some new costs onto our businesses in the, in the, in the restaurant sector specifically uh, because our members just don't have the ability right. to pay those extra costs right now. And sometimes I think they forget that we're in COVID and it go, you go back to your policy agenda before COVID and, and try and get back to business as normal. But uh, the industry is anything but back to normal right now. Yeah. And we certainly are going to need that bridging to get us back to where we can at least even start generating 100% of the revenue that we were before COVID. And then it's going to take several months to sort of pay back some of those debts and, and mm-hmm. get us back into a profitable situation. And we would argue it's in the province's best interest as well as in our industry's best interest, given that we're such an important component of BC's recovery with the amount of jobs and the amount of British Columbians that we employ. Yeah. And Mark, a final question to you, and we're very limited for time for your response, but there's also the other matter, the corresponding matter of the mindset change amongst the consuming population. The notion of going out for a a dinner in a restaurant is, uh, is something we still, many of us still have to wrap our minds around. And that's still a bit away too, isn't it? Yeah, that's a big concern as well, Sterling. And all the public polling that we've seen, we've had roughly 65%, even if there were no restrictions in place, only 65% of our 2019 uh, guests will feel comfortable going out to restaurants right now. Yeah. So we're, we do have a bit of a, a job to do, and then governments can certainly help us in building that consumer confidence. And that's why we've been doing campaigns like our, you know, a Picture Life Without a Restaurants campaign and supportrestaurants.ca. Mm-hmm. Those types of campaigns help, but of course they cost money, and we'd certainly like the support of all levels of government to help us get that message across as well as restrictions start uh, uh, coming off here over hopefully the next few weeks. Indeed. Well, it's personal in my family. Uh, my son's a chef and uh, his hasn't worked at his trade for a very long time. So, and he's certainly not alone. Mark, we wish you success with your plan and your, your program of, of getting more support from both the province and the feds. And we thank you very much for joining us this morning with the details. Thank you, Sterling. Pleasure as always. All right, there's Mark Von Schelwitz, Vice President, Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. We're welcoming back Chief Bob Chamberlain from the Wild Salmon Alliance to give us an update on the fish farm situation up near Campbell River off the Discovery Islands. Chief Chamberlain, Bob, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, Sterling. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well. Thank you, sir. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this decision by the federal court about uh, not a month ago. April 5th, I believe, was the date. Uh, they allowed uh, the let's uh, back it up. Uh, first of all, the uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the minister, uh, Bernadette Jordan, had de- decreed, if you will, that uh, fish farms would be closing in those locations off the Discovery Islands uh, in uh, in 2022. And so their phase out program was underway. Uh, the fish farmers intervened in court and uh, there was a decision by the federal court that allowed some of those uh, companies to restock some of the farms because uh, the economic harm would weigh uh, outweigh any environmental harms and that's i think where we're standing this weekend or are we bob is it moved from that point yet well you're close uh the court decision was the minister needed to consider the application for uh, the transfer license to put fish on those fish farms. So they're not restocking yet. Uh, The government still has time to continue down the correct path it's chosen 
and be, and refuse to let the uh, fish farm companies put more fish in those farms and protect wild salmon. So does the so the case uh, the decision by the federal court? It's not allowing the restock; it's allowing the farms to apply to restock. So assuming that that was the extent of the decision, it's pretty safe bet those applications have gone forward. So do we know anything about that yet? Well, I know that the consultation letters have now come out to First Nations about the transfer application, so that's going to be beginning. And, you know, typical uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans consultation model, send a letter, give us us your thoughts, and uh, you've got 15 days, and we'll consider what you say. Uh, It needs to be much more meaningful, and certainly the First Nations that I'm working with are going to be pushing very hard uh, to see that the appropriate decision is made to safeguard the, the dwindling wild salmon stocks, especially of the Fraser. Right now, in court, as part of this presentation, one of the fish farming companies uh, claimed it was going to lose over 25 million bucks. They were going to have to lay off over 75 people without this uh, interim injunction. Uh, and I, I guess those numbers impressed the court to the point where they allowed the application to go forward. So it, with this consultation process uh, and letters and so on uh, going out, how long uh, will this go on? And uh, at what point? does the restocking issue become moot because it's too late? Well, the problem that I see with the numbers that the industry keeps talking about, the loss of employment, the loss of revenue, this is their business decisions that they have made. Uh, In my opinion, the writing has been on the wall ever since the Cohen Commission and the development of science and public opinion and zero approval for this industry beyond their employees. And so the loss of money is simply a choice that they've made. And I don't think that BC Wild Salmon should be made to pay for poor business planning. And the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Minister Jordan has broad support from across British Columbia. We saw First Nation Leadership Council, full page admin, Globe and Mail. And uh, this is supported broadly across BC. And the decision she made is the correct one. So then, uh, what are your expectations? You're part of the Wild Salmon Alliance. You've been with this group for a very long time. You're quite familiar with the ins and outs of the DFO and their consultation processes, and I put that in quotes even, Bob. So what are your expectations going forward with this specific file? Well, the work that we've been doing is trying to inform individuals and British Columbians alike, and specifically First Nations and any salmon stakeholder, the fact that uh, the Canadian Scientific Advisory Secretariat, CSAS, which is what DFO is where DFO turns to to have peer review science accomplished. When you delve into the details of the CSAS process, you'll find that fish farm companies and their uh, associations marshal their science all the way through. So when you think about it, is it acceptable to Canadians that an industry is able to define its own measure of sustainability and the government go hand in glove to perpetuate that it's absolutely wrong-headed interesting stuff so are you expecting to participate in a consultation anytime soon uh, yes we're actively involved now we've been receiving letters and uh, again just very disappointed in what we're hearing from the dfo because in at the april uh, fishery standing committee meeting dr christy miller saunders spoke quite clearly of mouth rot uh, in Discovery Island specifically, which is uh, from a bacteria, um, Tenacibaculum. And then the response that we got from DFO is, well, well, it's not peer-reviewed yet. But the thing is, though, 
that, like I just spoke of, the horribly flawed peer review process, the mm. fix is on even before this science arrives there. But for me, for someone that deeply cares about healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks, it's time that the DFO implement precautionary principle, maintain the decision that's been made, and accept the science that's coming from their leading genome science expert in the department. Interesting stuff. Chief Chamberlain, Bob, thanks very much for this. We appreciate it. It's far from closed. We'll keep, uh, we'll keep in touch. And uh, it's very day. interesting stuff. And uh, you're right. You have a lot of support right across BC. Thanks for this.